In Acts chapter 21, we're going to be looking at an aspect of the greatness of God's sustaining love and His grace as Paul, with foreboding, looks at the future. Acts chapter 21, and the reading verses 1 through 14. This is the inerrant Word of God given as a gift to us. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we, who were Paul's companions, departed and came to Caesarea, and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. As we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles." And when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. Amen. Father, we come to your word. It is our desire to grow as we look into it. We pray that you would quicken the word to our hearts, mix it with faith, and uh, cause us in our responses to glorify you. We love you, and we devote this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. What does it mean to be steadfast? I think there's at least three things that are involved in that. Faithfulness, perseverance, and dogged commitment. At least those three things. Faithfulness, perseverance, and dogged commitment. It means giving our all to God. Um, William Booth, who was the founder of Salvation Army, which back in those days was a lot better than it is today, but he was asked one time what was the secret of the massive success that he had there. He didn't point to himself per se, but one of the things that he said was, I told the Lord that he could have all that there is of William Booth. And that's the testimony that I want my life to be, that everything that I have belongs to the Lord. Paul, despite the knowledge that he was going to face persecution and imprisonment, he was certain of that. Despite the knowledge of that, he set his face steadfastly toward Jerusalem. Now, of course, that begs the question of who's right on verse 4. You'll notice in the outline that uh, there's a question there. Is this a case of steadfastness or stubborn rebellion? 
There are some people who disagree with me and they say Paul was clearly in disobedience to the Holy Spirit. Just look at verse 4. Verse 4, it says, they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. They say that's as clear as could be. It's a prophetic command. Don't go up to Jerusalem. Paul has disobeyed that. He is disregarding the Holy Spirit's wishes. He is living in disobedience. So far from being steadfast, they say this whole passage is an indication of running you know, away from uh, the will of the Lord. Now, on the surface, there does seem to be uh, some validity to that, but there's many, many authors who point out that that interpretation is just not possible because there are so many scriptures that indicate that the Spirit told Paul to go to Jerusalem. It's just not possible. So on the surface, it may seem like there's a contradiction. There really is not. But uh, once you understand these scriptures, you will see Paul could not have heeded their advice even if he had wanted to do so. His heart was steadfast in obeying God's will. And uh, there are about four different interpretations of verse 4. Lord willing, we're going to look at that uh, verse next week and we're going to look at verses 10 through 14 again, uh, dealing with the whole charismatic issues of prophecy. Does it continue? Does it not? What is the nature of prophecy? Could it be ignored? Was it infallible and errant? We're going to try to wrestle through some of those things. And what difference does that make for our lives? Lord willing, that's what we're going to be hitting up if I can figure it out. No, I think I've got it figured out, but uh, that's what we're going to attempt to hit. But uh, right now, what I want to do is I want to look at some of the scriptures that indicate that the Spirit did indeed lead Paul to go there. Let's look at the subjective guidance first. Turn to chapter 19 and uh, look at verse 21. It says, When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem. He purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. This was a direct guidance from the Spirit of God. Okay, look at chapter 20, and I'm going to read uh, verses 22 through 25, and I'll intersperse some comments, but we want to take the whole thing in context. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. Now, New King James has a small s on Spirit. Uh, many uh, versions capitalize that S. Because of the word the in the Greek in front of spirit, it's almost certain it's talking about the spirit uh, of God uh, there. But either way you translate it, you still can't get away from the conclusion. Because even if it's Paul's spirit, the word constrained indicates that there was a will outside of Paul that was binding him. Constraining is another translation. It's moving him. It's not his own will. That doesn't fit with the, the meaning of that word. And so either way you take it, Paul is following the will of God. His spirit is being constrained or the spirit of God is constraining. him. either way that you translate it, you still come to the same conclusion. Okay. Uh, Paul goes on, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. Now, I want you to notice two things there. Every city that he's been going to, the constant refrain of the Holy Spirit is that, number one, he will be in Jerusalem, and number two, chains and tribulations await him in Jerusalem. Both of those things need to be taken into consideration. The Spirit's saying he's going to be there and he will face suffering. Okay, verse 24. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. This was not a selfish quest. This was a willingness for Paul to lay down his life for Christ, to die if need be. And he says there that there's two reasons why he was not moved from this 
this, uh, this, this goal to go to Jerusalem, and the first reason that he gives is so that I may finish my race with joy. God had given him a race, and he was bound and determined to follow this race or this course that God had given to him. Come what may, he was going to follow the Lord's race, not go off on his own race. The second reason that he gives is in the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This was a God-given task to go to Jerusalem. It was a ministry he received from the Lord is to testify the gospel of grace uh, within Jerusalem. Now, so certain is Paul that he's going to be in Jerusalem that he tells these believers, and indeed, now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. He says, I know. He is sure of it. Now, all of this indicates to me that Paul had clear guidance from the Lord that he was to go to Jerusalem and he was not running away from the will of God. He was steadfastly pursuing the will of God. That's why in chapter 23 and verse 11, Jesus speaks very positively of the ministry that he's already been doing in Jerusalem as a result of this trip. Following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And so hopefully you can see, and there's other scriptures like this, that there is a steadfastness of Paul to God's will. There is not an obstinacy in disobeying his will. And uh, 22 of the commentaries that I have on my shelf uh, agree with me on this interpretation. It seems that the, the rest of the book clearly indicates he's following the will of God. Now this is why... Luke and all of the other brothers in chapter 21 and verse 14 are finally convinced by Paul and they say, the will of the Lord be done. Paul's been giving them the reasons why he has to go to Jerusalem and they say, okay, I guess this is the will of God. The will of the Lord be done. Now, all by itself, to me, I think that's strong enough evidence to indicate Paul had to go to Jerusalem. He did not have a choice, uh, but there's more. There is the inspired, infallible Word of God. It wasn't just subjective guidance. Romans 15, verse 25, Paul, by inspiration, had earlier this same year said this, I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. Now, the book of Romans would not be the inerrant Word of God if Paul did not end up in Jerusalem. Because that's an inspired book saying he's going to Jerusalem. That was earlier this year. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 3, says uh, much the same thing. So whatever interpretation you take of verse 4, it has to square with all of these other scriptures that we have been looking at. It has to indicate Paul was not being stubborn. He was being steadfast in following the Lord's will. So um, this, this first point, and this is going to be a one-point sermon, even though you've got seven points there, it's just looking at the same point from many different angles, okay? It's a one-point sermon. Be steadfast in the Lord. This is one of the characteristics that uh, all good leaders have. Henry Austin said, Genius, that power which dazzles human eyes, is oft but perseverance in disguise. In other words, he's saying, there's a lot of people out there that uh, think that some of these geniuses, oh, it's just because they've got such amazing minds. You know, they're geniuses on that. And he said, actually, many, many of the times, that's not the case. The reason that they've been able to do more than anybody thought humanly possible to do is that they've persevered and they've been steadfast and they've kept at it until they've accomplished what seemed uh, impossible 
from uh, a human perspective. And so this is really a characteristic that separates the boys from the men. This is uh, the, the, the characteristic that separates the girls from the, the mothers in Israel. We've got to be steadfast in the Lord. And so we're going to look at um, Paul's steadfastness here. First of all, he was steadfast in the face of time on his hands. Now, that may seem like an odd thing for me to say, steadfast because of time, on, and despite time on his hands. That's exactly what I would like to have more on, more time to kill. But uh, there is an expression in English that says, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Okay? It's just an ancient observation that when you're lazy and you've got lots of time to kill, don't know what to do with your time, that uh, you can get yourself in trouble. It's not a luxury, it's a danger. So let's look at Paul. He had a lot of time on his hands as he's traveling. Um, uh, one person had calculated that uh, just in these three years, Paul has traveled by foot or by ship uh, halfway around the world. Seven, I think it's 7,000 something hundred, under 8,000 miles. I didn't write it down, so I'm not sure, but there was a lot of time that he had, and we could go through the whole chapter and look at some of the travels. I'm just going to look at the first three verses. Now, it came to pass that when we had separated from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. Now, it was, it was difficult to pull away from uh, the elders of Ephesus, but Luke has already told us in chapter 20, verse 16, that Paul's got his mind and his goal set upon Jerusalem. He's trying to get there as fast as he can, if possible, to make it by Pentecost. And so as the ship is winding its way through the aisles of the Dodecanese, Kos was one of the interesting spots to go through. This was uh, a lot of things there, but one of the things was this was the uh, school, a medical school that Hippocrates had set up. It would have been very interesting to Luke, you know, the physician. The next site that he mentions, Rhodes, uh, was probably the most fascinating tourist stop on the whole area. Uh, they had the massive lighthouse, which was so um, impressive. It was called for many, many years one of the seven wonders of the world. It was a statue so tall that ships could travel between underneath the legs there, and the, the lighthouse part was a big fire that was kept stoked all the time in a torch that was in the statue's hands. Uh, there were a lot of interesting things on this trip that if he wanted to be a tourist and get sidetracked, he could have uh, gone down all kinds of rabbit trails. But Paul is single-eyed. He knows what he wants, and he's uh, heading for that. Look at verses 2 through 3. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. Now, commentators point out the first ship that he was going on was a, uh, a coasting uh, ship. It wasn't big enough to be able to go out onto the open sea. Uh, but once they get into Phoenicia, I mean, into uh, uh, this uh, port here, they're able to get a, uh, sea, uh, an open sea vessel that's large enough to go all the way to Phoenicia. Now, from Patera to Tyre is about 400 miles as the crow flies. If you know anything about sailing, you don't go as the crow flies because uh, you're tacking uh, through the wind. And 
they say it takes about five days if the winds are extremely favorable for you. About five days to, to take that. Now he mentions Cyprus, which is the only land you would see on that journey. And so Luke's accuracy in all of the details of this book are just remarkable. There have been a number of atheists who have tried to disprove Acts. A couple of them actually became Christians as a result of their research. But they have said this is a marvel of geographical, cultural, historical accuracy. But I'm looking at these verses to show Paul's steadfastness. If you were traveling, uh, and it would be a minimum of eight days, if you're traveling for eight days on this boat, you have a lot of time to kill. What are you going to do with that time? Okay, do you just let it happen or do you plan? Uh, one of the foundational principles in my life is that if you don't plan for something, something is going to take dominion of you. It's an inescapable fact. Dominion is inescapable. You're either taking dominion of something or something else is taking dominion of you. Now, that doesn't mean you can't relax. Of course you can relax, but it needs to be a part of your planning. You don't just let it happen accidentally or it won't be the right kind of relaxation. Uh, you, you take that as dominion. Now, no doubt, Paul spent some of that time reading and writing, some of that time perhaps relaxing. He needed relaxation. Some of the time perhaps uh, talking and discipling. We're really not told. But any time that you are idle for days at a stretch, it would be very easy for the dangers that were looming in front of Paul to begin to creep into your heart, to gnaw at you and to make you anxious. You could begin to second-guess yourself and think, ooh, is this really a wise idea for me to be going on this trip? So that's the first danger that could happen is anxiety could creep in and kill you. Uh, another uh, danger, some people are deviated from holiness because they've got too much time to kill. That's exactly what happened to David when he fell into sin with Bathsheba. The text says, this is the time when the kings went out to battle. Well, everybody else was out to battle, but David decided to stay home, and he didn't even know what to do. He's wandering around on his roof when he sees Bathsheba. And so the text indicates it was precisely because he had time to kill that he, the tempter got him. I've talked to many men who have to travel a lot for their jobs, and uh, they have confessed to me that it's been in the hotel room. When they're bored, there's nothing to do, that they've started flipping through the channels and they've found themselves watching pornography. One guy said, we talk of killing time as if, alas, it weren't time that kills us. And sometimes that is true. Idle hands can be the devil's workshop, but despite the fact that Paul has a pile of time to kill, he is steadfast in heart, and we can be as well. That's the point. Point number two, Paul was steadfast even when opportunities to bail out presented themselves. Look at verse 4. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot of questions on what verse 4 means. Was this a prophecy or was this an uninspired guidance from the Holy Spirit? If this was a prophecy, is Paul's failure to follow it proper or is it improper? Can this be a paradigm for how we treat prophecy, especially since the word prophecy is not really used in the text? Is everything that they said wrought of the Spirit or was there a mixture? Uh, the Spirit giving them information and on the basis of that information they come to a conclusion and they tell Paul something. There's a lot of questions and you will find people on both sides of that 
question, charismatics, non-charismatics, reformed, non-reformed, you'll find people who are Greek scholars who come out on different sides of that question, which to me indicates this is not really that central of a verse to base your whole theory on when there are alternative interpretations uh, that are out there. And so, you know, I'll give you my viewpoint next week. But just for now, I want to point out that on any interpretation that you give, any interpretation, if Paul wanted an excuse to not go to Jerusalem, he had it. Okay, here was his out. Perfect out. After all, these uh, Paul's already, we've seen, nervous, very nervous, and these uh, guys have received a revelation from the Spirit based on that, or because of it, however you interpret it, they say, hey, Paul, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. Uh, we know from the Spirit you're going to be facing danger there it would have been very easy for him to not go. Now, I'll just give you a quick hint. Uh, I agree with uh, 22 of the books that I have on my shelf that there was a portion that the Spirit gave, and that portion is filled out by Luke. It's like, okay, I'm going to give you one example here. I'm going to fill out exactly what these examples in every city have looked like. Verses 11 through 14, the Spirit gives very clear revelation that there's going to be trouble in Jerusalem. Based on that revelation, they're able to say, come to a conclusion, hey Paul, it's going to be dangerous there, don't go. Okay, so there's part what the Spirit has given, there's part what, uh, what came from them as well. That's just a hint of where we're uh, going to be going with that. But, if you were worried about prison and beatings and, you know, who knows what, maybe even death happening... And somebody tells you something like that, hey, the Spirit's clearly revealed to me. There's going to be troubles in, Jer uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, we're just urging you, don't go. What would you do? What I want to do is I want to kind of filter this into the 20th century, since there are not, in my opinion, ongoing prophecies today. Let me put it into modern categories. You have a very difficult marriage that you would love to get out of. And... Uh, there are pastors that you can turn to who will turn to the prophetic scriptures and they will look at these out of context and they will say, yeah, you, you've got reason that you can get divorced and you want to believe it and so without doing much more research because you don't want to discover anything that would contradict that, you go ahead and you follow uh, what this pastor has said. Sincere pastors have, have done this in the past. I've known a number of cases where people feel led of the Lord, quote-unquote, led of the Lord to do something that the Bible clearly says is sinful. It's easy to hear what you want to hear. Or your excuse for being not, being not being steadfast at home as the head of your home might be, I'm not gifted, or my wife can do it better than I can, or I deserve a break today. Or your excuse... Uh, for being uh, away from home and falling into sin might be, I'm just going to take a peek, and it's for research purposes anyway. Uh, or it may be, so-and-so is a godly pastor, and he watched that movie, so maybe it's okay for me. There's hundreds of excuses that we can come up with as to why we do not need to be steadfast. Some of you have heard of Bob Leland, or is it Leland? I forget how you pronounce it. But in Vietnam, he took a hit and lost both of his legs. Uh, he went into the war, uh, about 200 pounds, six feet tall. He came back 
two and a half feet shorter and 87 pounds. And this was something that so devastated his life, he could have very easily given up and started feeling sorry for himself, but he refused to do so. He refused to feel sorry for himself. The artificial limbs that were given to him by the doctor were just too limiting. So he tossed those away and learned how to walk on his, on his hands. And uh, here's what he did, among his other accomplishments. He did the New York Marathon in 98 hours, 47 minutes, and 17 seconds. He ran on his hands from California to the Vietnam Memorial, a distance of 7,784 miles, on his hands. Okay, Now that's steadfastness, giving all you have, right? And giving, uh, giving it uh, without any reservation, without any excuses. Now that's not a calling I have, to be walking around on my hands, you know. Uh, and not a calling that most of you would have. But here is the point. Do not let other people talk you out of the calling that God has put upon your life. It's so easy for people to just give up because they don't have the finances or they don't have this or that. If God has called you, run for it. Point three, Paul was steadfast in the face of losing dearly loved ones. Let's read verses five and six. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. Now, before I look at the steadfastness that's illustrated here, I want you to notice that this was a family-integrated event. In America, we have so many age-segregated events that it's really hard for families to do much of anything together unless they got real foresight and planning that they're, they're engaging in. But this is a pattern that you'll see all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament. People worshiped together. They prayed together. They learned together. They worked together. They did things together. And you'll see that here. Now, when I was reading in Matthew Henry's commentary, he said, this must have been an incredible testimony to the pagans who were looking on. Pagans notice what kind of a family you have. They notice what a difference is there. Now, they may not say anything. They may just be watching, and that may be just one of dozens or it may be one of hundreds of things that eventually grabs their heart and makes them jealous of the gospel. Romans 11 says pagans should be jealous of the gospel because the gospel of God's grace transforms us. It blesses us. And so this is something that I think we shouldn't just overlook. But when it comes to steadfastness, here's a thing that I've noticed. The very thing that is a blessing from God, the very thing that is a blessing in Christian circles, strong family, good friends, good church, fellowship, can also be a testing ground on whether we're going to follow God. It's very easy for people to compromise on little things because of the peer pressure of godly Christians, peer pressure of the church, because... Nobody else has seen what you've seen in the Scripture. Nobody likes to needlessly bring pain to loved ones. But following God's will sometimes is not comfortable for us. And you can think of other countries uh, where people have had to face the choice of losing their loved ones because they're going to be thrown into jail or into prison or compromising. And that's a tough thing that tears at these people's hearts. They have a legitimate choice. They could compromise and be able to spend time with their loved ones or they could follow God's will and lose out. And that's one of the first things that persecutors many times will do is they will make threats 
on your loved ones. So just realize your greatest pleasures in life can on occasion be your greatest challenges as to whether you're going to be steadfast or comfortable. Now in this case, Paul was uh, called to leave his friends. He knew he was never going to see them again. And so there was incredible pressure that could have made him desire to quit. By God's grace, he did not. Point five. Paul was steadfast in the face of repeated warnings that he would suffer. Now, we've already seen these repeated warnings. Chapter 20, verse 23, every city that he'd been in, the Spirit has testified he was going to suffer. But let's read verses 7 through 11. (coughs) And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied, and we're not told what they prophesied. Most commentators assume because of the way Luke is laying this out that they're prophesying exactly the same thing that all of the other prophets were prophesying. Paul's going to be facing danger in Jerusalem. We're not told, though. Verse 10, And as we stayed many days... A certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. None of us likes to suffer. Unless you're a masochist, I guess. Uh, Some people inflict their own pain. But I think all of us, despite our aversion to suffering, would be willing to take a bullet for somebody in our family or somebody that we loved. I think that we would be uh, willing to even exchange places in jail if we could get you know, our son or our daughter uh, out, of, uh, out of jail. It's not those kinds of things that challenge us because we've thought through already what kind of sacrifice, what's the cost-reward you know, uh, uh, ratio there. What really gets us is when we're not, we've not thought about it, it just unexpectedly hits us and we just... Let fly with a reaction. I think this is one of the reasons why God was constantly warning Paul. He did not want this to be unexpected uh, for Paul. How many times have we selfishly said, no, you cannot do that to a legitimate request in our family simply because we have not had forethought thinking through the issue and later on we feel bad and say, you know, that really was selfish on my part. I should not have said that. How many times have we blown up, gotten angry, and then said later, you know, I should not have uh, done that. We haven't prepped ourselves to be steadfast with servants' hearts. See, if we had already developed servants' hearts, it would have come out automatically even though it was unexpected. How many times does a child lie so that he won't get a spanking? And then afterwards, think, oh, I should not have done that. Now I've got to confess that and I'm going to get a worse spanking because I lied as well as doing the other sin. Now they're caught in a dilemma. Uh, it's really hard until we get into a position where we're mature enough, where we're doing the right thing automatically, it becomes instinctual with us. And it can become such a habit that it is automatic. When you face the suffering of resisting fleshly cravings and temptations with doing just like Jesus did, immediately resisting that temptation with the Word of God and then meditating on that Word, having it go through, what happens is that our mind becomes conditioned to associate a given verse with any given temptation so that instead of the immediate association being, I want to respond by, by sinning, 
the immediate response is resisting that temptation with the Word of God. It can become a habit. It can become instinctual within us. Steadfastness needs to be instinctual. James Botts told of a forest ranger who walked through Yellowstone National Park after the huge fire a few years ago. And he was uh, just looking and evaluating the damage, uh, making notes. And he came around the, the corner of one tree and he saw a, a fossilized bird on the ground. It was a weird sight because it was completely ashes and yet it retained all of the form of the bird. And he touched it with a stick and it kind of fell apart, fell over, and out of its wings scurried three little chicks. And so here was this mother bird that could have flown away long before the fire even reached it, instinctually protecting its young. And even when the fire was scorching its body, it remained steadfast in that position and spared the young. This is what Jesus did for us. He was steadfast in bearing up under the fire of God's wrath so that we could be saved, we who put our trust in Him. And He calls us to have the same steadfastness. Sometimes it is a fiery endurance that God calls us to, but God wants it to be so instinctual, our steadfastness, that we're not even tempted to move. We want to be faithful to the Lord because we've already given Him our all. Uh, He can take our life if He so chooses. Now quickly moving on, we see two more evidences of Paul's steadfastness. In verse 12, we have yet another call to bail out. Now, when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Even Luke was pleading with Paul. And I want you to notice this really is a parallel with verse 4. It is through the Spirit that they know about this danger, but it's they... In both verses, it's they who speak rather than the Spirit who speaks. They're the ones who plead with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Verse 13 shows that Paul was steadfast in the face of emotional pain. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Seeing their weeping was breaking Paul's hearts. And at sometimes hard for us to do the right thing when we know doing the right thing is going to bring misery and pain into the lives of other people. It may be a wife's weeping over a decision that you have made that's a godly decision. Or it may be a a, a child, you've given him a task and he's weeping and crying, Daddy, do I have to really do this? And he just feels like this is an overwhelming task that you've given. It's a reasonable, it's a godly task that you've given. But the father or the husband, as the case may be, just caves in and he doesn't do what God wants him to do because why? They're breaking breaking his heart with their weeping. Uh, When some of you became Christians, this happened to you. You had family uh, members and friends who just struggled with you over this. And they said, what are you doing? This is a weird thing. Why are you becoming a Christian? And why are you having to adjust all of these priorities in your life and they're, they're uh, arguing with you and they're weeping and they're, they're, the things that they've done were breaking your heart and what the thing was, it was a tug of war. Are you going to follow God's will or are you going to uh, succumb to desiring uh, the, the comfort of those that you love? And I think you can think of all kinds of scenarios in which it is emotionally painful to be steadfast. But by God's grace, you can do so. Then Luke ends this section where we began it, 
total submission to the will of God. Look at the total submission of Paul in verse 13. I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And notice the total submission of the rest in verse 14. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. They too had come to the place where God's will was more important than their desires. And that is where we all need to be. There's one hymn that I just love. It's the theme hymn at Covenant College. It's all for Jesus. And I want to end by reading uh, these verses for you. All for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my beings, ransom powers, all my thoughts and words and doings, all my days and all my hours. Let these hands perform His bidding. Let my feet run in His ways. Let my eyes see Jesus only. Let my lips speak forth His praise. Worldlings prize their gems of beauty. Cling to gilded toys of dust. Boast of wealth and fame and pleasure. Only Jesus will I trust. Since my eyes were fixed on Jesus, I've lost sight of all beside. I think this verse is really the key to being steadfast. He says, since my eyes were fixed on Jesus, I've lost sight of all beside. So enchained my spirit's vision, looking at the crucified. Brothers and sisters, you will only be able to be steadfast as you are captured by God's grace. You're only going to be able to set aside the, the lesser things that tend to capture our vision when you're captured by the Lord. You're looking to the Lord. You're only going to be able to, like Paul, be bound in the Spirit for your Jerusalem, as this hymn says, to be enchained in your Spirit's vision for your Jerusalem when you've looked at the crucified. And so that's my charge to you. I call you to be a people who is steadfast for the Lord. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of your faith. Don't allow the excuses and the pressures and the discomforts of this world in any way to cause you to deviate from the upward call that God has given to you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Father, thank You. Thank You for the challenge that we have of living testimonies like Paul, that Your grace can conquer our dispositions, that Your grace can capture our vision. And I pray that our vision would be captured and uh, held uh, uh, in Your grip as we look upon the crucified, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us not to seek to do this in our own strength, but help us day by day to grow in the love and the grace and the, and the passion and the strength that flows from Your Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We love You and we bless You. In Jesus' name, Amen.